0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From
1: the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Behind the Markets
0: on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111.
1: Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, and ETS sponsor. Today in the studio, we have my co host Wesley Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, please note, I'm registered representative of side fund services. Our discussion is not tied to any trading strategies or t- toward the office of investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Trace affiliates. We have a really interesting show today for you. We've got a history of high-frequency trading, it's a sort of opaque um, sort of type of services, trading. A lot of people don't know about high-frequency trading. We have two great guests in the studio today. Alex Sadowski, who's the former Deputy General Counsel, Global Head of Compliance, and Head of Business Development at KCG Holdings, which was bought by Virtu in 2017. Uh, Alex is currently now looking to be the General Counsel (laughs) somewhere else, so anybody listening in, um, you find his skills attractive, somebody to be talking to. We also have David Babulak, who's now the managing member of StrongPoint Holdings, LLC, investment company focused on real estate, public markets, private companies. Uh, Wes invited these two gents for the the show today, so Wes, thank you for inviting them. Um, But I think maybe we'll just start for Dave and Alex. Tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves, get to your history, why you guys are sort of the experts and can help educate everybody on high-frequency trading. Maybe Dave will start with you.
2: Sure. I kind of run through the whole history. Uh... So I studied engineering at the University of Michigan, and I was in Army ROTC, so then I spent uh, four years on active duty in the Army, and uh, mostly in rural Missouri. Uh, the coolest thing we got to do was blow up a bridge. Uh, so if you go to YouTube and look for Benton County, Missouri bridge demo, uh, you'll probably see a, a video of us blowing up a bridge. So that was that was probably the highlight. <laughs> Fortunately for us, it was a, a time of, uh, of peace, and mm-hmm. the drawdown was going on, so not any uh, overseas action. Uh, then from there, I went to Stanford and studied engineering economic systems and operations research, which was kind of a combination of two departments. They hadn't come up with a better name yet. Uh, it was basically quantitative problem solving and applied it to financial problems because it seemed like there was a way to combine operations research and finance. Uh, but at the time, this was 97, there really weren't any uh, financial engineering programs, didn't really exist yet. Uh, so it was kind of a new thing. The first job I got out of school was on the floor of the Chicago Board Options Exchange with Susquehanna. Um, Only did that for about four months as a clerk. I spent the whole time, uh, the market was still in fractions, and so I spent the whole time all day practicing fraction flashcards, doing put-call parity with fractions, Um, and I wasn't very good at it. So I thought it was stupid because I wasn't good at it. I was like, this should all be in decimals and shall be done on a computer. Um, And so I, I realized I didn't want to be a floor trader. I went to Hull Trading, which was later acquired by Goldman and uh, Blair, Blair Hull's firm, and was a financial engineer there for a couple of years. Um, and then a uh, the partner of mine said, hey, let's, let's start our own electronic trading company. And uh, he talked me into doing that. And you know, we didn't have a lot of experience, either one of us, but we're like, well, we'll give it a try. It seems like there's something going on here in this electronic space. You know, at the time, uh, some of the futures markets were electronic, Globex. Um, was really And then um, the European markets were electronic. So there was definitely volume in that space. And we're like, well, maybe we could figure something out. And if it doesn't work out, we'll just go get a job back in the industry. And we did that for a couple of years. That was Blink trading, got up to about 12 people. And then in 2002, uh, met the guys from GetCo. And they were about 30 people at the time. And GetCo ended up acquiring <clears throat> Blink. And uh, so went from about 30 people to 40 people at GetCo. Uh, so it was very early days there. And then I spent 10 years at GetCo. Uh, kind of rode that whole wave of the electronification of markets. Um, that was kind of the, the core premise of what we were, what we saw happening was things were shifting from the uh, phone and floor to the screen. And the idea was to apply the principles of market making on the screen instead of on the floor or phone. And uh, stayed until about uh, 2012. So that's kind of my story. Now, Alex, where did
1: you come into the picture?
0: Well, first, I should say my story is not nearly as interesting as Dave's. Unfortunately, there was no, no blowing anything up or or being in the Army. I was going to be, a, in my mind, I was going to be a professional tennis player. Uh, but then I quickly realized uh, after college I was not nearly good enough. Um, so I decided uh, I would go to go to law school. And I was very, very interested in markets from, from a young age, you know, influenced by my grandfather. He loved the stock market. He would talk to me about it every day. So I wrote my law review article on Insider Trading. Um, And that's how I really uh, got interested in in securities uh, law. And so then when I graduated law school, I got a degree at Georgetown in securities and financial regulation uh, and then went to the SEC. And this was in 2000, it was right at the height of the dot-com bubble, um, which was a good time to be going into the sec because a lot of people were leaving they were you know at this time everyone was going to the new technology startups and whether in finance and and, in other areas and then as we all may remember the market had a had a tough 2000 from 2001 so the sec uh, became uh much more important i think in the in the eyes um of you know Congress budgets got raised, things like that and and the things that we started doing were very very interesting and and as Dave mentioned at the time, the markets were in the middle of of, of really truly being transformed um you know going from from manual markets uh, to electronic markets and, and our group, we were responsible for conducting. Uh, inspections and examinations of broker-dealers, ATSs, ECNs, exchanges. Uh, so I had a lot of involvement um, in that. I interviewed one time probably 25 former specialists and 50 clerks on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, which led to a, a fairly significant settlement back in 2003, 2004. Um, and then in 2007, uh, at this point, Getco was still relatively unknown, but as as Dave said, you know, it was a very large market participant. Um, and I, I went there. Uh, my former boss at the SEC became the general counsel at Getco, and they needed help. And while well, at that point they were bigger, they were only 125 people or so, and, and it
3: really was real quick. Act just to give context there. When, when you say really large, I know Dave. Like you guys know the number. Can you just explain how big Getco was? So,
0: so I think at its truly at its at its height there was a period of time where Gecko was probably north of 20% of the US equity markets in terms yeah. of volume. So, yeah, so
2: we were a market maker so you know that that number can seem large. You think about what the New York Stock Exchange specialists they used to have 90 some percent market share, right? And by that I mean being on one side of a trade. A trade involves two people. Uh but yeah, we were on because we were out there in every security not just U.S. stocks, but you know, we're active in Europe and Asia, and all the futures markets and cash bonds. Um, basically, on every bid and offer, uh, so you end up doing a lot of volume. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't yeah.
1: know the full history of where Getco went. So, is that where is that today?
2: Uh, so uh, you were there for the, yeah. the whole. So yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, so he, he's going <laughs> to tell the story. Sure. There, so yeah. Getco to
3: cl- quantify uh, how big uh, it was, yeah, yeah, even though no that. one knew so, who it was.
0: So at that point, mid mid two thousands. I think people were starting to understand that you know high frequency trading is something that is that is that is real and electronification of markets was happening. Um, so, you know, Gecko was the was the largest, and then in 2012, uh, Gecko and Knight Capital, which which was also a large market maker, they had a much more customer centric business in terms of market making. Um, they had a lot of the retail firms, you know, Ameritrade, Echway. E-Trade uh, Schwab, um, and, and Gecko was more of a, we'll call it an on-exchange market maker. They traded on BATS, New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ. Um, and so Gecko and, and Knight merged. We rebranded ourselves to KCG, um, and really one of the largest, still largest market participants, along with Citadel in both the, the, the wholesale market-making business and on-exchange market-making business until Virtu in 2000, 2017 purchased, purchased KCG.
3: Now, just because it's a pretty uh, fascinating story, like why did Gecko end up buying Knight? Because there's a little bit more. Yeah, there, there, there to that, is right? a little
0: bit more detail. Uh, so, Knight is a firm that was around for a long time. They were they were one of the original market makers in 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 the mid 1990s in the, the dot com bubble that I mentioned. They were very very successful. They had a very very strong. A uh, customer base, and they actually really transform themselves um, to become more electronic uh, in 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 two thousands and you know after um, after the dot com bubble. Um, in two thousand in august august first, it's a, it's a day that will that will live for for many. August first, two thousand and twelve, they essentially had to, for electronic trading firm the, a worst case scenario. they they had a they had an algorithm essentially run amok. They had a, a an order routing system that wasn't supposed to create orders, but it did. Uh, and they ended up in about a 30-minute period acquiring positions, uh, and really not in a lot of stocks, but probably 150 or so. But the magnitude of the loss, um, they got a, a book size that was probably $7 billion per side. So it was just, and they had to get out of it. So that day they lost about $450 million. Um, so it's it's essentially bankrupted the firm. So a group led by uh Jeff- the investment bank, Jeffries did an underwritten offering. This was on a Wednesday when it started. Um, by the weekend there were various firms that were there doing due diligence and and, and Getco was was one of them and we Jeffries you know led the round and it was not just Gecko, there was Ameritrade was involved, BlackRock uh, uh was, was was involved, or Blackstone I should say. Um Jeffries made an investment and essentially it was a bailout for four hundred million dollars. Uh, and Getco then became the, really the second largest shareholder of Jeffries. and then at the time, you know, it made a lot of sense to kind of just fully bring these two firms together. And so by December, we had signed a deal to do to do a merger between the two firms, and, and then it closed uh, six months later in, in 2013.
3: I assume uh, Getco redid the algo and fixed that problem. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, it was it, it, it was it, it was an interesting time. In terms of from from a technology perspective, because there were very different technology sets between what Getco was using and what uh, what Knight was doing, and both were very very successful uh, in in their in their own right. And I think if you if you read some of the the history, just even from the Virtu acquisition, I think one of the challenges that KCG had was it was really really difficult to bring all of the all of the technology. Uh, together. But certainly that was a big focus Uh, and it was a big focus of of markets overall is to is to make markets much more resilient. Knight was not the only high profile incident during those times. Uh, You you may recall there was the Facebook IPO um, uh, a few years earlier where essentially NASDAQ had a problem and the the IPO didn't go off. BATS and their own IPO had an issue. So um, and then there was obviously the flash crash. So, you know, which was in 2010. So at this point, Markets were very highly automated, but there were certain events that really spooked spooked investors for good reason, because these were very disconcerting events. When, when you think about the flash crash, how quickly the markets went down and then came back up um, led to, to a lot of the changes we've seen over the last few years.
1: And, and there's sort of like the business of market making, and then there's like the, you know, for the retail listeners who are trying to get orders executed, they want the cost as low as possible which is obviously for the market makers, the least amount of profits. And there's, you know, maybe talk about you, what you would say is the current state of that. Like, how what is the current state of the market-making business for the electronic guys? And then for retail, who's trying to get access to liquidity, how – is it a good environment for
2: them? Is it the best ever for them? Like, what, how do you – you- Yeah, it's definitely the best environment ever for, for retail investors. I think there's a, a common misperception that – Retail investors get segregated off and somehow get ripped off or pay more. But the truth is, retail investors are the least dangerous for a market maker to trade with, right? So as a market maker, you're selling an option to the marketplace. Here's my bid. Here's my offer. If you want to trade, trade. If you don't, I'll just keep leaving my orders out here. You decide when you trade, right? So the remover of liquidity has—they get to purchase that option, right? They, They get to decide when to make that trade happen. Um, and if you're out there as a market maker and the people you're trading against are AQR, Jane Street, Citadel, <laughs> and Renaissance, you're going to have a tough mm. quarter, right? <laughs> so because when they're buying, the market's going higher, right? When they're selling, the market's going lower. But, you know, if if my uh, – look, if I'm buying Microsoft in my retail account, it's, hopefully it goes higher over the next year, right? But yeah. it's not in the next 10, 15 seconds it's going mm-hmm. anywhere, so retail orders aren't dangerous to trade against, and because of that, they can actually get better prices. Um, and so that's where the whole uh, wholesaling market is has taken off. And you want to talk about that? Let me just reintroduce
1: sure. our guests here. We're talking with David Badlack and Alex Gadosky, um former uh, high frequency trading firms. Uh, with with Alex and, and David, and Alex, you're jumping in here.
0: It, sure. So Dave's right. I think it, it's never been it's never been better for retail investors. Um, and, and frankly, it's been, it's been that way for, for quite some time um, because, like anything with, with technology, um, typically low, lower lowers costs. Um, and one of the other things I think that the wholesale market makers do that often gets overlooked um, is they do take on a lot of operational risk. And what I mean by that is when Ameritrade or Schwab or what have you, when they send an order to Citadel or Virtu, you know, they're the two largest the Two largest right r- right now, they handle that order meaning they're going they 're going to get an execution whether they execute it against whether they execute it themselves in a sense what 's called internalization um, and if they don 't internalize it then they 'll route it out to one of the the various uh, market centers whether it 's a, a another another market maker an EC, uh, an ATS or ecN or or an exchange uh, itself and you know the competition for people who want to provide liquidity is enormous there's you know there's a dozen equity exchanges uh, there's there's probably thirty five or forty dark pools there's single dealer platforms so there's just numerous ways um, f- for market makers and other per- participants to access liquidity and I think for the for the for the retail brokerage firms that's something that is very very valuable uh, to them is to send it to that one place and then they can they can go and and make sure that the order gets Gets executed, and I think there's there's also been that recognition, as, as Dave mentioned, that there's actually true value there, um, in terms of the the order itself, and, and I know it's been it's been talked about uh, in numerous articles and instances over the years. Is something called payment for order flow. Uh, it seems to be a, a very controversial practice that's actually really probably not that controversial it's been it's been around literally literally probably for you know 3 decades um and that's really uh, a practice where a market maker would pay a broker to send them send them the order um i think the sec has done a good job over the years in acknowledging that there's obviously conflicts of interest um that go along with that but one thing that has been constant is that firms that route orders to market makers or other other venues, they have a duty of best execution and they can't let any conflicts of interest like payment for order flow or rebates or things like that impact where they they route orders. Now, obviously, cost is going to matter if all things are going to be equal and you can get paid to send your order flow somewhere or not get paid. You're a rational economic actor. What are you going to do? Right. Um, And it's and it's it's interesting because I think people worry so much that retail investors are being harmed by this practice when in actuality they're being helped by it. I mean, look at commission costs over the last decade, right? Or and, right that, and, that, and, and that's really how it works, right?
2: Mm-hmm. So I, as a market maker, might, the stock might be a $25 stock. So the market might be $25.03 bid at $25.04 offer, <clears throat> penny-wide market. Well, the market trades in pennies, so I can't narrow my market anymore. But your retail order, I want to give you a better price, and so I pay for that order. And so the effective market is really twenty five oh three one at twenty five oh three nine, right? And so it's really like a narrower market. Now that payment doesn't all go to the retail customer; they might see a slight, you know, nine 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 improvement on their price. The payment goes to the broker, and what does the broker do? Well, they they use that money to build the tools that everybody likes on their brokerage account. They use that to have low commissions. Um, mm-hmm. And and that so that flows through to the service they're providing for their retail clients.
3: Mm-hmm. So so one of the things that's interesting about payment for order flow is you know macro wise you're right because of competition it probably ends up being better for the retail investor. But the issue is it's you know people don't really care about being rational they care about fairness a lot of times and it just it just. Feels dirty in some sense, so and and that's you know even though it's good for you, it doesn't feel fair because it's like oh you're sending my orders and these guys are effectively front running, but in kind of a in a nice way that ends up being better for me after the fact. Is there any way to to structure it where you could achieve the same you know in state, but have it more transparent about what's going on to like my dad? Like, do you guys have any bright ideas on? If you could just re reinvent the wheel well, and start over, I
0: think that's I think that one of the challenging things or maybe frustrating things for for a lot of market making firms is that over the last twenty years, I think the the SEC has done a, a very good job uh, of making it much more investor fr- friendly in terms of the you know there's been the order handling rules which were in 1990, 90, 1998, uh, and then there's there's you know, order routing and disclosure rules known now as 605, 606. To, to mm-hmm. your question, Wes, is it, it, these things have been around for a long time where people have to disclose who they accept payment for order flow from, who they accept uh, rebates from, mm-hmm. um, you know, making sure that they are getting getting best execution. So these types of protections have actually been around for quite some time. But you're right. There is a perception that, well, something nefarious must be happening because someone's paying for something right. But one of the most difficult challenges is that in every business, every market, right, there's there's going to be an incentive structure, right? So if you take away payment for order flow or take away rebates, does that mean that incentive structures are going to go away? No, it's going to manifest itself probably in a different way. Yeah,
2: I mean, you could create a market where you inverted it and uh, the retail customer gets that 3 bid at four market and that's what they pay – And then you charge extra to professional customers, right? You charge more to a Renaissance or a Citadel or a Jane Street. Mm -hmm. Um, They wouldn't want to trade on that market. (laughs) So you'd have to to have a way to force them to trade on that market because they would find other ways to trade away from that market. Um, But in theory, you could create a market like that. And then you have markets like the futures markets, like on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange uh, there doesn't matter who you are; you pay the same fees. Everybody pays, <laughs> and it uh, doesn't matter whether your order is high quality or low quality uh, in terms of what market maker would want to be on the other side of it. Uh, you pay the same fee, mm-hmm. uh, so in some sense that's fair. But what ends up happening is because as a market maker, I don't know whether you're a retail order or a professional order. I charge you, you basically. The retail orders subsidize the professional orders, right? I'm going to charge you a higher price as a retail order cuz I have to because you might be might be a very difficult order to take the other side of um so you know, it's, it's, you can go kind of however you want to uh, set up those structures. But it, yeah. it, but there is an incentive structure now, one way or another. Now you see,
1: like in terms of just the cost of execution coming down, you, you've seen this sort of, the, people talk, West in our industry of the fee wars and ETFs and the passive, the, the, the move to zero fee. You actually now have apps like Robinhood that is actually no fee trading commissions. And you have Schwab and Fidelity battling out to lower commissions. Do you think everybody will have no fee commissions? Do you think Robinhood is a sustainable model that you could have no fee?
2: Like how are they going to make money? Uh, full disclosure: I love Robinhood. I'm an investor in Robinhood. Okay, so, uh, there you go. <laughs> I think those guys do a great job. And uh, so, what's the thesis? Why? Why the investment? Uh, it's a, I invested in them very, very early on. I, I think I may have been their actual first investor. Wow. Uh, I met those guys while I was at Getco uh, through a mutual acquaintance, and there wasn't at the time they were building trading infrastructure for people, so there was no Robinhood. Uh, interesting guys, definitely smart guys, and. Uh, you could tell these guys just make stuff happen, right? They were hustlers. Um, but there wasn't a fit to do anything with GetGo. And so didn't talk to them for a few years. And then I was out and uh, moved out to California after GetGo and got an email one day and uh, they're like, hey, we're starting this company. We're going to do, it wasn't even really clear. It was more like a social stock um, tracking app kind of thing. It wasn't, wasn't even really solid yet. Uh, but it turned out their office was two blocks from my house. Uh, so I was like, oh, yeah, I like these guys. I'll go see them. And so started talking to them and just uh, just wanted to uh, be a part of what they were doing. Uh, so invested a little bit with them. And, uh, you know, the, the best thing about those guys is just their ability to execute. Um, you know, early on, they had to become a broker-dealer. At the time, nobody wanted to become a broker-dealer, right? Like, we became broker-dealers all the time because we had a whole giant compliance team, former SEC officials, lawyers. They didn't have any of that stuff. But they just went ahead and did it, and they figure out, well, here's what we have to do. Well, okay, let's work through it and do it. Um, and they just consistently had a very strong ability to execute and, and accomplish what they set out to do. Um, so, yeah, I think those guys are Inter- great.
1: Interesting. So I still haven't heard how they're going to make money, but I just saw a story that – I think, did they just get a funding round around $5 billion valuation? Yes. Is that an accurate story?
2: That is uh, what happened, yes. Interesting. They're, they're doing very well. So
1: is it is it this payment for order flow? Is they, it They, they do Are some of that. Make they make on money on
2: margin. They make money uh, in a bunch of different ways. Um, and I think the, the real thing, you know, they're in the customer acquisition stage. So they do make some money off of all these things. But, you know, right now it's not about how do we make the most profit possible. I think their vision is really to build – A full service financial institution. I think if you talk to a lot of young people, they're gonna have, they're not really gonna understand. It doesn't make any sense to them. Like, why do I have a checking account over here? Why do I have a brokerage account over here? Why is my retirement over here? Why am I getting insurance from these guys? Like, why don't? Why isn't my financial life all Mm -hmm. consolidated and just easy? Um, And so I think, I think the sky's the limit for those guys. I think one of the things
0: to highlight about payment for order flow is that when you when you look at the practice. Particularly over the last five years, it's actually gone down quite a bit, um, and the reason for that is is that the amount of co- is referred to as price improvement, meaning the 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 actual price of the execution that goes directly to uh, the end investor. There's been there's been more allocated to price improvement and less to payment for order flow for the. I think for one of the reasons that that has been highlighted by many is that there is that conflict because the payment for order flow goes directly to the broker and even though they can lower commissions and it's it's beneficial um, you can't argue with price improvement because it goes to the actual execution that the end in investor uh, gets so I think we're going to see more and more discussions around what is the Best way to incentivize all market participants, and and one of the challenges is not everyone not everyone obviously has the same business model. If you are a liquidity provider, you like re, on a public exchange, you like rebates. Right? If you're a liquidity remover primarily, you're paying what's called access fees, and and that's a cost to you. So uh, these debates are going to continue to rage on. Uh, And I think they're actually very healthy because it ends up making the market more efficient um, and it'll lead to lower costs for, I think, what everyone has best interest in mind for long-term investors.
1: This is a great conversation. We're going to continue on the second half of the show. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. We'll be back after a short
0: break. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111.
1: Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, alongside co-host Wesley Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. Today, our guests in the studio are Alex Sadowski, former Deputy General Counsel, Global Head of Compliance and Head of Business Development at KCG Holdings, David Babalak, now the managing member of Strongpoint Holdings in his retirement phase after (laughs) his uh, high-frequency trading days. Um, Wes, before... We were ending the first part of the show. I know you wanted to jump in with some, some questions. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll turn it back I to Yeah, I just
3: wanted to follow up. You're, you're talking about the different business models out there with payment for order flow and the different conflicts, of interest, and where it may or may not go. And and I know of one firm in particular, uh, Interactive Brokers and Thomas Petterfee, They're big proponents of, hey, this payment for order flow stuff is opaque, crazy. Like, why can't we just focus on price improvement and, and making it more clear to the consumer, you know, Doing it our method, like the transparent, clean way. What, what is your opinion on the cost benefits of that approach, and where that site th- might go?
0: Yeah, I think it's a it's an interesting question, and no doubt, I think I think all of the large market making firms would 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 welcome discussions around increased transparency the, in terms of how orders are executed and where payments payments go. Um, you know, the the SEC has talked about it recently. Uh, In the in the context of uh, applying the 605 606 rules to institutional executions, Uh, so yeah, I think there's certainly room for improvement uh, in terms of how things are disclosed. And do if you want to ban payment for order flow, what does that mean? Does that mean everything has to be in price improvement? Honestly, I think some of the you know traditional wholesale market makers would not have a problem with that. I don't. I, I think you know, some of the retail brokers would not have a problem with that. A lot of retail brokers firms have stopped accepting payment for order flow. So uh, you you could see that being something that, that could, could, could catch on. But as as I said, payment for order flow has been around for so long and there actually is a lot of information around it. Uh, so it, it becomes more challenging to, to, to get it, to get it changed.
2: I mean, one of the great things now is just the competition between the different models, right? So, I mean, I love interactive brokers. I've had an account there for, for years, uh, if they're offering what you're looking for, they're fantastic, right? Mm-hmm. If but you know some people like maybe the uh, more user friendly tools at an Ameritrade <laughs> or something. Uh, I think Robinhood's great on mobile. So uh, a lot of different choices for depending on what you're looking for.
3: Uh, another fall on uh, it, it kind of gets mixed in with payment for order flow, but not really. But do you guys mind talking to the? There's the dark side of HFT, and then there's kind of like the, the white knight side, like the ones that actually provide liquidity. Um, and I know Gitko was, was very like anti-dark side, but you always get pulled in with the evil empire. Do you mind just explaining where HFT is good and where it can be bad?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big distinctions is just how much liquidity you add. And so what does that, what does that mean? If you're... Uh, we talk about it as adding or removing liquidity, right? So if you're selling that option to the marketplace, if you're putting in bids and offers and other people choose to trade with you, I mean, I would argue pretty strongly that you're adding a lot of value to the marketplace, right? And I think in our equities, U.S. equities business, we were probably 90% adding mm-hmm. liquidity, meaning that 90% of the of our fills were people choosing to trade with our orders, Um yeah that that's that's a pretty good spot to be in. No. Other firms were more 50-50. Some were 90-10 the other way where they were primarily removers, right? They said, "Oh, the market's about to tick higher. Let's buy." Um, you know, we didn't like trading with those people. <laughs> so uh, yeah. I think
0: removers would argue that they're you know, they're providing a, a benefit to the marketplace. Because right, keeping it, prices it, in line and making
2: right. sure yeah. that things don't get yeah. – um, they're executing arbitrages, yeah. keeping but, keeping but ETFs it, in line with baskets, it, all It that. really
0: does get back to the these incentive structures, not just payment for flow. We talked about the maker-taker model some, um, where uh, t- historically, over the last 20 years, this has really become the dominant market. When you go all the way back into the 1990s, there was really – there was really, you know, Two markets, right? There was a Nasdaq market, which was a, which was a dealer market where market makers, you know, competed for water flow. And then there was the New York Stock Exchange. They had the specialists uh, where it was where it was an, an auction market. And you know, th- again, things traded traded in fractions and spreads were really really wide. But in the late nineties. And this is something I think if if listeners have time to go to go look at they they should. It's it's called the Nasdaq 21A report, um, and it talks about the Nasdaq market. And it's a for anyone who is interested in market structure. Why it's a fascinating read uh, is is because it, it really talked about collusion among market makers to keep uh, spreads artificially wide. And it, and it actually, I think one of the things that it did is it really. Uh, you know, led to a lot of the investor-friendly changes that we're seeing, uh, that we saw over the last twenty years. And then along along the, along the same time, you had firms like Island and, and InstaNet, these electronic communication networks uh, that were being created, and they were starting a new a new type of model, which was the maker taker model, um, where they incentivized people to provide liquidity, uh, and that became the dominant model, and it's been the dominant model. Uh, but now uh, people are questioning that model. Is, is there too many conflicts of interest there? And, th- and that's been a debate that's been really going on for, I would say, the last seven or eight years, uh, you know, in particular when IEX um, came onto the scene after, after Flash Boys. Um, they've been very vocal uh, about their disdain for rebates, and, I mean, they've called them kickbacks. Uh, so it's a debate, I think, that's that's worth, worth having as to, you know, where where we should go in terms of the, of the structure of uh, of how incentives are paid, uh, but where it ends up is. And if you look person. around the world,
2: I mean, you'll see a lot of different market structures. We operated on, I don't know, got thirty different exchanges around the world, plus tons of ECNs. Oh yeah, um, hundreds. And probably. so there'd be yeah, there'd be maker taker exchanges, but there were plenty of. Uh, uh, debit debit exchanges, right? Mm-hmm. Just like the CME or, C border, or Chicago Board of Trade, where you pay, it doesn't matter whether you're adding liquidity or removing liquidity, you pay a fee to the exchange. Those exchanges make mm-hmm. a lot of money. <laughs> uh, we, there would be other platforms where we'd pay more of a, an access fee. And uh, so that you can have a lot of different structures. Uh, they all can work. Um, I, I tend to think the maker taker can be a little more efficient because it compensates market makers for selling that option to the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, which that's a valuable option to give away. If you don't incent people properly to do that, you might not need it in a futures market because it's so liquid and so active, right, that that adverse selection uh, is maybe less of a problem. But in a liquid stock, you know, where you may maybe trade a 100,000 shares a day and you're posting these orders for anyone to trade with, well, a lot of times when a trade takes place, it's because somebody knows something, right? Something's happening in that stock. And as a market maker... You know, you can't just give away money. It's a business, right? So you have to get compensated for the risk you're taking by selling that option to the marketplace.
1: Now, you know, one of the new hot markets um, for trading, and, and also I know Robinhood, we go back to Robinhood, is, is sort of investing around is the cryptocurrency market and the trading there. You got the, the, the place, place like Coinbase and people are trying to get access, but it's also pretty highly cost-execute. Any conversations about where you see, how you think about crypto? At
2: the asset class or currency, whatever you want to call it, and and trading there, yeah. Just I think just this week we've seen you know, regulators have an expectation that crypto markets are going to look a lot more like regulated equity markets. Uh, maybe you could talk about. Yeah,
0: the SEC came out just just the other day and 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 mentioned that about the the, the exchanges. Uh, you know, I think they use the word amateur that they you know they really need to think about their structures and whether they're. There, there needs to be registration as exchange or broker dealer registrations. One of the challenges, I think, with with the crypto markets right now, is there's so much fragmentation? How many how many different markets are there that 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 you just trade Bitcoin? But you take that with the combination of the new ICOs that are coming out. So there's a whole myriad of issues that people are. are literally in the infancy of, of trying to, to figure out as what the final market structure will look like. And to Dave's point, I think what is what is happening, and I think rightly so, the SEC is, and even the CFTC and others are being more aggressive around, look, if you want this to be a legitimate market, if you want to get to a multi-trillion dollar market cap, which I think all crypto enthusiasts do, and I think we are going to see that someday, you need to think about how these things are traded and investor protection measures, because the things that they're talking about in the crypto markets they talked about in the equity markets a lot you know about wash trading and and pump and dump schemes and spoofing and layering these are all very bad things that if you're running a crypto market, you do not want to be associated with you, with your with your market and unfortunately there's all and any structure, there's always going to be some bad actors. So I think we're 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 going through a stage right now where we're trying to trying to really parse through it. To, to hopefully get to a point where it becomes a more mature market. There is some regulation around it. There becomes some standards uh, as to how things are things are executed. And I think if that happens, you're going you're to see the growth in the market in, in the coming years because I you think know, everyone agrees the technology is there and it's going to be transformation. I think
2: one of the things we've seen from uh, particularly U.S. regulators is a willingness to allow business to develop as it develops, right? So we don't really see regulators saying, no, you can't do that. Uh, we tend to see you can do that if or you can do that as long as you disclose uh where you have uh registration around this uh there 's going to be rules around this, but they tend not to say you can 't do that at all uh whether it 's payment for order flow and wholesaling mm-hmm. whether it 's uh, various uh a t s structures or you know electronic trading venues um, they 're very uh, they 're reluctant to stop business from progressing and that 's a that 's a good thing um, but they are uh, adamant about disclosure, about regulation, and uh, it's it's things aren't going to be a free for all forever. Um, so that that is now coming to the crypto space.
0: Yeah. And one of the things you said earlier, uh, Wes, stuck with me in terms of you know kind of the dark side of, of high frequency trading. I think that was always one of the frustrating things as as a firm that we we dealt with is that there was there was an assumption that the business that we were engaged in was somehow bad. Um, And we constantly tried to, to, you know, to try to convince people we're trying to build a long-term sustainable business. I think one of the hard things about market making in particular is it's not really tangible to end investors in some ways, meaning they're not exactly sure what benefits are being provided. So we would constantly talk about them and say, our business model is not manipulation. Our business model is not to try to take advantage of, of investors. Our business model is to make them their customers. And and I think there's been a lot of progress on that front Um in the in the high frequency markets over the over the last you know 10 years or so. And I think that's something that crypto is now hmm. is, again, in the very, very early stages. And they're I think they're starting to realize that we need to be able to go to people if this is really going to be widely adopted, people need to have comfort that they can trade fairly, that obviously their their assets are going to be there. Then, you know, hacking, if that's thefts and things like that. So there's a whole myriad of issues that they're trying to, to work through, and it's just going to take time. It's still a, you know, a, an early-stage market.
1: We're talking with Alex Sadowski and Dave Babalak about trading issues. Here we just started on this crypto type. Uh, Dave, given your your Robinhood investment, I'm curious, are you bullish on crypto long run as an asset class, as a trading vehicle? Like Any thoughts? Do you have any other investments around crypto? Uh,
2: I do not. Uh, I've kind of Missed the whole crypto thing, my okay. regret. <laughs> I had a, a good a good friend talking to me about Bitcoin when it was ten. Uh, <laughs> well, now at least you got Robinhood. Robinhood is a derivative play. I'll, yeah. I'll give you that. <laughs> yeah.
0: When I was in compliance at, at KCG, this is in 2010 2011, A lot of traders would come to me because you'd have to get permission to to trade securities, and they would say, "Hey, I want to buy this Bitcoin. Can I do it? Do I need do I need compliance approval?" And we would went and we thought, well. One I don't know what this is um and so <laughs> we went you. now You're right and, and it so we we figured out that yeah we could let let them do it, so my only complaint is, is to those guys that did that they didn't tell me to buy some too <laughs> yeah. but, um so it, yeah it's it's been a, it's interesting'cause Bitcoin has been around for you know for almost a decade now, but you know it's really just exploded in, in the in the in over the last year, and now I think people recognize um that it, that it's real and and We're going to see in the financial services space the the technology. I don't know when it's going to happen, but there's going to be, I think, some significant changes. You you think about it still takes now two days, but forever it took three days to clear and settle a stock transaction. That's insane, (laughs) right? So it's now I think blockchain is going to help move a lot of things forward to to, to make – Back-end processes is more efficient yeah. and trading more efficient as well. You
3: know, uh, speaking of that, because, you know, we deal with custodians all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's like the trillion-dollar institution. We're finding mistakes in what they're doing, and we work out of a garage, mm-hmm. and you're like, God, when are these people going to get efficient? <laughs> you know, it's T plus three. You know, now it's T plus two. Like, d- do you foresee in the future where this gets to, like, you know, immediately or end a day on everything? Or is that technology possible, regulatory possible?
2: What do you think?
0: the short answer is yes well certainly for some firms right Mm -hmm. but
2: i think for some legacy firms i mean you see when they decided hey we're going to move away from t plus three the debate of hey let's go to t versus t plus two didn't last very long right Mm -hmm. now i think if you went to some uh, more modern firms or more high-tech firms it's just insane why are we only going to go to t plus two um But for a lot of firms, that was still a huge, painful change, a massive increase in efficiency. Um, But these things tend to move in one direction, right? And Mm -hmm. over time, uh, you know, that period is going to shorten. Things are going to get more efficient. They're going to get cheaper. The technology is going to improve. That tends to be a one-way street.
0: Yes. Sometimes I think people just underestimate just how long things can take even though when everyone knows it's ripe for change you take the treasury market for an example right it's the most liquid market in the world there's still not a there's not a consolidated tape or anything around that All right so yeah i mean just... we ran into people <laughs> yeah. in the fixed income
2: space at banks that told us flat out told us <laughs> Yeah, my job at the bank is to make sure what happened in equities doesn't happen in fixed income. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And there's just a a lot of trade. trade. You have no idea what it's pricing. It's just a lot of uh, vested interest, right? Mm -hmm. And you run into people that are like, look, let's be clear the the fixed income market is going to look like the equities market. But I got two kids about to start college. (laughs) So, not in the next five years. Right. So, what's (laughs) going to be the catalyst
1: to? I mean, now this is actually Wes, where you and I are in the ETF business and people say, the high yield ETFs are going to create the downfall because it's adding liquidity to an illiquid market and you can't see real pricing on fixed income. Any sense of where, what's going to be the catalyst to help get this stuff?
2: I mean it is slowly changing uh, I mean you know the, the u s cash treasury market for on the run treasuries has been electronic for a while, whether mm-hmm. it's uh, you know eSpeed or broker mm-hmm. tech platforms uh, those have been around for a while and that that is the lion's share of uh cash treasuries but off the runs you know the corporate bond market the high yield market you know a lot of these uh there's just tons and tons of products right they're they're very uh, one offs most don't trade most of the time um there's definitely going to be a advantage to making those electronic, and that's probably going to happen over time, but it's going to take a long time. For
1: yeah. for for like common investors using trading, is there any lessons you might have for people? You know, the flash crash, where you saw bids just evaporate from guys like the high frequency guys, and so they liquidity, there's volatility, liquidity gets pulled, or there's no bids, and then people have these stop loss orders that get executed at nonsensical prices. Any lessons uh, about stop loss orders or
2: generally yeah what you use limit orders limit all the time Do not use market orders, don't use a stop that is a market order. Um, those are just too too dangerous. you're leaving too much that's unknown. And you know a lot of brokers try to do things well they'll okay if you're going to send a marketer we're actually going to make it a limit order where you're going to buy the offer plus five ticks. Well, that market still might not be there. Um, right. You know, you're better off entering the price that you're comfortable buying or selling at. And if you get filled, great. And if you don't get filled, well, you didn't get the price you wanted. Nothing happened. It's fine. Um, you know, come come back to it later. Uh, so so yeah, from the market, market perspective, perspective, <laughs> talk, talk about why
1: there should not always be liquidity. Like, you know, when people say, why aren't these people posting the markets there? Like, from your perspective on that other side of being the market maker, what were you thinking in terms of the algos and why there just becomes yeah
2: i mean we did continue to post markets um you know as a market maker like i said you're selling that option right and so at some point that option becomes very expensive because there's a lot of unknowns about what's going on um so you know some people would say like i can't price this option i have no idea what where my bids and offers should be i'm just out i don't know what's going on um and the truth is, you know, you don't want your market makers going out of business, right? And if people are making markets and they don't know what's going on or they're not doing a, a, a good job of being where they should be, they will blow up. And that's, that's not good for the marketplace right. either because, like, okay, great, you had a market today, but they're not going to be much in the way right. of to, uh, markets tomorrow because they're they're gone. They're out of business. I mean,
0: sometimes the supply and demand, it yeah. just it overwhelms one way. And I, I think we would try to explain to regulators and others, well, well, why did you stop buying? Because we didn't want to buy anymore. We had enough we already had enough risk on. We didn't want to, to Dave's point, we didn't want to take any, take taking on any more risk. And I think there's, there's somewhat of a misconception that well, that is the market maker's job is, is t- to take on that risk. And in some sense, it's true, but it's not true to the point where, as said, <laughs> they said, they blow, blow, yeah. <laughs> blow themselves up. And I, I think that's just something that needs to be to be better understood. Uh
2: I mean, we always we were fans investors. of uh things like trading halts, mm-hmm. right? And you see those in the futures markets now, we've got yeah. those in the mm-hmm. stock market. They're pretty wide. Mm-hmm. But uh they they do exist, circuit breakers, right? So if the market moves too far too fast, mm-hmm. hey let's take a couple minutes, make mm-hmm. sure the world's not ending, give people a chance to reset, figure out what's going on. Okay, now everybody right. can come back and trade. And those those are pretty effective.
0: Yeah. I think that's what we've seen in terms of so From the late 90s to, say, mid-2000s, say, when Reg NMS, there was was a lot of focus on, again, as I said, order handling uh, and making sure best execution. Best execution is always going to be a primary concern of regulators. But what we've seen, you know, Since the electronification of markets, now there's much more focus on making sure we build the systems, as Dave said, trading halts, to have resiliency. There's the market access rule, which is really not that old. There's Reg SCI. There's a lot of different things that have been put in the system because regulators acknowledge that markets now, they move much faster. It's all electronic. So we need to make sure that we have... Safeguards in place because the overarching goal is right th- to have fair and orderly markets. Right, that's what the SEC wants. That's what Finra wants. That's what market participants want. Uh, so I think most most firms recognize this and they're generally supportive of of initiatives that support more transparency and disclosure and more resiliency. But obviously, you got to factor in the costs of complying with these things, and and, and that's always a balance um, th- that needs to be. Uh, discussed among regulators and, and participants themselves. Yeah, um, so we're getting pretty close on
3: time, and be nice. We had three or four hours here to talk about the history of HFT, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I think Gecko. I like I commend you guys because you you moved the world to a much more efficient place from going from kind of good old boys network, you know, manual labor to let's use computers to make markets. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the big lessons learned from your decades of experience in the world out there, and, and what, what do you think investors should take away from what you guys went through?
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a couple, um, maybe high-level. Some of these may be more, uh, more business-focused. But uh, So one of my, my favorite quotes is that methods are many and principles are few. Methods will change, principles do not. And so what we saw was an industry where the principles of market-making were going to stay the same. Those have been around forever. But the method by which markets were made was changing. And it was going from floor and phone to screen. And so what you see often is that, uh, a method gets pursued to extreme lengths, right? So it was all about like, where do you stand in the pit? What step are you on? Okay. Some guys would wear elevator shoes to make themselves taller, get really good clerks, have a handheld, and then it pivots to a new method. And none of those things mattered anymore. Um, and that's a very disruptive change for people, uh, It invites an inevitable backlash because a lot of people were making a very good living doing things. And when the method changed, all the things that they're good at no longer matter. And very different skill set or tools or relationships matter. And uh, you'll see that take place in in various industries. If you are looking for an industry to work in, being in an industry where the method of something is changing and being on the right side of that uh, is a good place to be because uh, things, these things tend to play out over maybe like a decade. And uh, one thing you will see about that is that this change takes place and people maybe are in denial or not really paying attention to it. And so you can see a backlash like, I had no idea it was this happened. Well, this has been going on for years. I think Facebook's seeing this, some of us right now with this uh, Cambridge Analytica deal. You know, they made these changes two years ago so that what happened can't happen anymore. And I'm guessing from their perspective, they're kind of bewildered like – what? This was years ago. This can't happen anymore. Why is everybody so upset? Uh, because if you were paying attention, it was very clear that they were selling your data, right? That's that's kind of the business model. Um, but these things play out over time, and then people react to it. So uh, be on the right side of a method change is one piece <laughs> of advice. Uh, another thing that we saw was really the power of having partners that have a vested interest in your success, Uh, So in our cases, I talk about like the exchanges going for profit. When the exchanges went for profit, they looked around and said, all right, who's trading a lot? Well, these electronic guys seem to be trading. It was still very new. uh, But they saw that they could influence how much trading took place, right? So if we build better access, if we build a faster matching engine, volumes go up on the electronic side. Uh, And so the more we traded, the more they did things that allowed volumes to grow in the electronic space, um, and they put screens next to the floor. They had both side by side trading of the like the S and P 500 futures. Um, the electronic side really took off, and they embraced that. And that was great for us. That you know the things they did fed our success. Um, and so having somebody that has that vested interest is is very powerful. And I guess I'll give you one last uh, kind of interesting story about the efficiency of markets. Um, So the SEC is funded every year by they get a budget from Congress, and they're required to be a self-funding organization, which means they have to charge fees to cover their budget. And it's called a Section 31 fee. It's actually a a transaction tax, essentially, that we have. When you sell a stock, you pay a slight fee, and it's basically like on the order of five one-hundredths of a penny per share. So very small, maybe $22 on a million-dollar trade. But at the time, we were trading like a billion shares a day. Uh, and if you work that out, it comes out to about $400,000 a day, which is $100 million a year that we were paying to the SEC. Uh, so we were a very big part big of their funder. budget. <laughs> right. Big funder. Uh, and because they have this budget every year, if volumes are really high and they're collecting a lot of money. They cut the fee because they only need to raise a certain amount of money. And so they, this year they were going to cut the fee in half. And so we looked at it like, oh, my God, we're going to make an extra $200,000 a day. Is It's $50 million. It's just going to pure profit drop to the bottom line. And what happened was we made zero. None of that felt fell through to us. And that was just how efficient markets are, that even though markets are a penny wide and trade in pennies, on mar- on the margin, they became tighter and more efficient. And that money just kind of disappeared in the marketplace. Um, and that's really the power of efficiency and competition. And we saw it again later. They raised the fee. Um, and we looked at it like, oh, my God, this is going to cost a fortune. Really didn't see much of an impact, um, and so the big takeaway for me is just markets are way more efficient than you think. They don't always work in this linear. If the Fed does X, then Y is going to happen. Um, they're just way more dynamic and complex than that, and uh, it's a lot harder to to actually predict what's going to happen.
0: I think to to Dave's you know, to Dave's points, just to, to add to that about efficiency and competition. I think one of the one of the great things that listeners can 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 take from this is that there's 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 constant seeking of improvement in, in markets. I mean we've seen markets improve dramatically over the last twenty five years. Uh and I think we're still gonna see see improvements. I often analogize it to kind of transportation systems, right? Transportation systems are it's a it's a complex infrastructure, whether you're talking about driving on the highway, trains, planes, there's a lot of things that can go wrong, but they're constantly trying to improve. They're trying constantly trying to, to make it more efficient for who? For the end users of, of the product. And I think that's what we see a lot in financial markets. People scratch their heads a lot of times because they say, well, it's really complicated and really complex, and I don't understand it. But if you wanted to right now, you could pick up your phone and you could probably buy a, a, anything you want in terms of a, of a security in probably 45 seconds. Right? So there's been that improvement, and I think from the regulator's perspective uh, and market participants' perspective, there's there's a belief that we're going to continue to try to try to improve to to, to make to make access uh, to markets, transparency around markets, uh, you know, better for, for for years to come.
1: This has been an excellent conversation, Alex Sadowski, Dave Bablak. Thank you for coming to the studio, Wes. Thanks again for inviting them. You've been listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 111. Have a great week, everybody.